0: as we record this podcast on the way home, on the 401 from London, I'm surprised that your phone battery has anything left. With the amount of texts and notifications you and I have gotten since Game 7 between the London Knights and Kitchener Rangers ended, an absolute classic of a hockey game.
1: I can't speak for you, but I know that I gave 110% tonight at the game and all of the text messages and the notifications that are flowing in congratulating us. Just remember we are not actually part of the team. We, we make no money from the team. We make money from the radio station. We're happy to be still making money uh, but anyway, I, I am happy right now for the Ontario Hockey League because they had, with no disrespect to 18 other teams in the Ontario Hockey League, They had, the league did, 18, or two teams, two proud franchises going toe-to-toe for seven games into overtime. And that overtime period was one of the best periods of hockey I think I have ever seen in this league.
0: Yeah, that was, like, that was just a bananas hockey game. I said to you after the game, I said, I don't smoke, but I feel like I need a cigarette. (laughs) Like, it was just, it it was wild. And, yeah, all those texts, I'll use the same thing I said at the rink to Mike Stubbs and Jim Van Horn, but, you know, thanks for, like, everyone texting, congrats on the win. You know, we worked hard. One of us used our smarts, the other one used our size. We got the puck low and went to work, you know. Um, But that was just, it was the perfect way to end it because we've had, we had such a good series through six games on the way down. You and I were talking just about how we no matter what happened in Game 7, we don't care. We just want it to be a good game. You don't want a six-game, really good series. Then you go into Game 7, and it's like 4 nothing after the first for one team or like 6 nothing after the second. Kind of just takes the wind out of the sails a bit. But all due respect to every member of the London Knights and Kitchener Rangers teams because that was one heck of a series and one I honestly don't think I'll ever forget. It was the perfect cherry on top to just a incredible seven-game series between two arch-rivals. The
1: absolute best part about it, for me, connected to what you just said. Because we're talking on the way down to the game, obviously. It's a Game 7. We were both, I, I know, feeling all day, like, this is great. Because we get to go be a part of a Game 7 in our small way in what has already been a really good playoff series. There were controversy. There was all kinds of great drama on and off the ice. It was fantastic. And, and we talked about just wanting to see a good game. We didn't want to see a team jump out to a 4 nothing first period lead and then put it on cruise control. And we were able to say during that intermission after the third period in a 3-3 game, we got everything we could have hoped for. Certainly doesn't matter to us who wins the game. We were treated to a great hockey game. And then, yeah, that overtime, we, went, we had two whistles in the overtime. The first one came in the first 15 or 20 seconds off an icing, non-icing, and then there was another whistle somewhere around the 10-minute mark. It was incredible, end-to-end. London started incredibly strong. The Rangers found their legs, and then Mike Petizian. Think about this. I mentioned the off-ice drama and the controversy in the series. Mike Petizian was the victim, if you will, of having a goal he scored taken away on video review, and the league admitting after the fact that there was an error made, the goal should have stood. So that goal was taken away from him in Game 5, and then in Game 7, he scores the overtime winner. I, you, you
0: don't write scripts that good. <laughs> you don't. I said that to Josh Brown of media row. I said, it's, a, you know, it's drama at its epitome. Like, all these reality shows and all these TV shows, they're all just trying to mimic sport. And I can't figure out why people don't like sports. Some people, like I, you're missing out, especially this league because as much as I've enjoyed watching the Stanley Cup playoffs and it's really good hockey, I don't think they make a bad pass. It's incredible. Um, but the, just the raw emotion that you get from these young kids and if you if you haven't seen the goal and the celebration, go back and watch because to have, as you mentioned, Mike and go through everything he's went through in this series, but a five-year Ranger player an overager possibly playing his final game and he scores the winner, the emotion that flowed out of that man as he celebrated it, you could just see it. That meant everything to him. And I, all due respect to the London Knights, a great team, some fantastic players, uh, obviously a great coach and general manager franchise, the whole thing. Uh, that I was just – I'm so happy right now. That was just a wonderful, excellent series and exactly what this league needed – after two and a half years or yeah two and a half years out yeah that's exactly
1: the thing so great for the league and you talk about the London Knights and, and you have to be you have to be real about what was going on and you know they were battling through some stuff Brett Brochu everybody knows was not a hundred percent Tony Ostran just didn't play game number six when the Rangers won pretty convincingly to force the seventh game and then he was throwing up before Game 7 and it appeared as though when he left the ice at one point during Game 7 that he was throwing up again. They were without key pieces on their back end including, of course, Logan Mayhew, Isaiah George not there. So the London Knights were battling through a lot of adversity and they put up a whale of a fight in the series to make it go seven games like it did. And and the heartbreak you could see, Strongest was on one knee at his own blue line for quite some time after the Rangers had scored, celebrated, and were getting ready to line up for the, the post-game or the post-series handshake. So credit to both of the teams, really. It was just a fantastic series. And in a surprise to me, the Kitchener Rangers, the only upset in the first round of these playoffs out of all eight series. You talk about the two and a half years away, and that's why I thought that this might be the year that we see some upsets in the Ontario Hockey League playoffs, and, and we did not. So the second round's going to be uh, Hamilton and Mississauga in the east, and then uh, North Bay and Kingston. And then over in the west, Windsor will get the upset specialists in Kitchener, the 1 7 matchup. And then the other one's going to be the uh, 3 4 with Flint taking on the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds after Flint won a game seven tonight. While the Rangers were winning an overtime, Flint won it uh, 4-2 over Owen Sound, which is a good hockey club, and a lot of people thought that was the sexy upset pick in the first round.
0: That was my sexy upset pick for sure. Um, I'm sure it was a hard-fought series, definitely, with those two teams. Uh, I know Greg Walters didn't like some of the uh, uh, acrobatics, let's call it, that the Flint Firebirds had.
1: Is there much that Greg Walters does like, just out of curiosity,
0: besides maybe his own team? No, just his own team. Okay. He had some comments about Mike McKenzie at the tail end of the season. You can go back to uh, kitchenertoday.com to take a look at those. Um, And then he had some comments about the diving that Flint was apparently doing. But uh, that's quite the series between those two, and we knew it was going to be a hard fought, especially after Nick Porco's comments at the tail end of the season, calling for an upset. I feel bad for Porco because... After saying that, as an an overager, there's a lot of pressure on you. And he wasn't 100%. He was fighting that illness towards the end of the season and uh, reading a lot of the stuff that was coming out of Owen Sound, it was quite clear that Porco wasn't at 100%. So it's tough when you make those comments thinking that you're 100%, and then all of a sudden you have to try to live up to it when you're fighting stuff. And I I really like that Owen Sound team, the way it's built. Like We don't have to talk about all the rookies. We've talked about them enough up there, but they have a great foundation for years to come. Um, I really like... The the idea of Flint and Sault Ste. Marie. I said it at the tail end of the broadcast, but if you missed it, uh, Flint and Sault Ste. Marie in the second round, if you're a gambling person at all, or just like money, bet the over. <laughs> just pound the over. Eight eight and a half, pound it. Over.
1: So we can't uh, we can't just gloss over. We alluded to the controversy. Mike Patizian's goal being disallowed in Game 5, the league admitting the error, and the OT winner, great script, yada, yada, yada. We do have to talk about the big news in the league this week, and I know there's been a lot of chatter about it already from the chattering class, and, and that's fine. Because you know what? If the fans are engaged in your game, I think that's a good thing. I'm not positive you want them to be engaged in a manner in which they're upset about something and barking back and forth or complaining about officiating in the league or anything like that but but let's just talk about what did happen and and a couple of things i want to make clear up front in this conversation is, is number one the the controversy and the blown call in the rangers knights series game five was a video review call that was blown. It was not, It had nothing to do with the officials on the ice. In fact, the officials on the ice called it right and then it was overturned by replay. And a lot of fans just, oh, the refing in this league sucks. Oh, the refs are paid off. The hunters this, the hunters... Like, I know you're fans and you're just being fans, but maybe try to be less fan-like in those situations and, and take the higher-level view and understand what happened here. And the second part of it, again, to understand what happened here, somebody made a mistake. And Yeah, it was a bad mistake and that's what gets me kind of fired up because the frustration for me as someone who loves this game so much is that we're doing video review and we're getting it wrong. And that's a bad thing in my opinion. But I don't think the person that made the mistake is a terrible person. I don't think the person that made the mistake should lose their job. I think we should just acknowledge that a mistake was made and then more than that, Let's talk about how we're going to fix those mistakes moving forward. And in this case, if we're going to use video review, we're always going to need a human being to operate the machinery and look at the replays. So as long as a human beings involved, there are going to be more mistakes. So really what you want to do as a league moving forward from this, in my opinion, is do your best (laughs) to limit those mistakes because humans are always going to make them so if you want to limit mistakes I think it's a pretty easy solution in all of this and that is this is a league it's worth a lot of money people were paying more than 10 million dollars for franchises in this past season you know what it's worth you put bums in seats people invest in this league it's the best development league in North America if not in the world so let's pay somebody let's pay some somebodies to work as video review judges from the offices in Toronto. Let's train them to look at video the way we want them to look at it. And let's make them full-time employees of this league. And every review, just like they do towards the end of the playoffs, can be done at least in the postseason. Every review can be done from a head office in Toronto by trained professionals paid by the league. I think that's where you go to limit the mistakes in the future.
0: I shockingly agree with you. I don't think there's another way around it. Regular season, I think you just stay the course of what what you have right now. Maybe try to get some people, some other people involved that want to get into that type of work. I don't know. Um, But I think when it comes to playoffs, all these video reviews, every goal is looked at in-house. But it should be looked at in Toronto. And I don't think... And it might get busy some nights, but you can have a couple guys in there that can look at goals. um, Because... That, that's the best part about video review. It was brought in to take the human error element out of it because some the game's so fast. Like, I get it. It's so fast that referees on the ice and lines people, they make mistakes. And when you have somebody at the league head office looking over that kind of stuff, it's not that bad. Then they can actually, you know, get it right and invest some money and fix the issue. I, I did like how the league had Conrad Hachet there at the game tonight just to make sure... You know, he was in the video booth the the entire game. And I thought that was smart for the league to have him there. Just Even if he wasn't doing anything, he was just overseeing. It was good that they had him there because it at least showed that they were wanting to make sure it didn't happen again. As far as the statement goes, whatever. Uh, Rinse, wash, repeat until we're going to fix the actual problem other than just saying it's a problem. I appreciate the fact that they came out and said, yeah, we made a mistake, but there's a way around the the, where the mistakes being made and that is to just have every goal reviewed in Toronto I think this is something because I'm actually I I feel more
1: strongly about the statement in support of the league for issuing it this could have been done behind closed doors it could have been a phone call to the kitchen arrangers and the London Knights instead of a public media release saying hey we made an error an error was made by one of our off-ice video officials so I give the league a lot of credit for that. It's very transparent. But really, the the plan for how we address this moving forward will be sorted out by the Board of Governors at their next meeting in the summertime. And and hopefully, this is something that they're taking seriously enough. I, I would like to think that with, again, no disrespect to the other teams, but a couple of heavyweight franchises with some history and tradition, the London Knights and the Kitchener Rangers may be moving this conversation forward at the board of Governors meetings it gets some traction
0: yeah I, I don't want to understate that I, I was happy that the league recognized their mistake but they had no other option <laughs> like it was wasn't a little mistake and it wasn't really much up for debate like I didn't have anybody anybody you know reply to my tweets or message me saying well, well you know I think he might have kicked it no no one, no one thought he kicked it in when you see the review so they had no other choice but Again, it's just like they've, they've apologized for things like this in the past. So when it's fine to apologize and it's fine to make mistakes. But if you're going to do the same thing, it's kind of the definition of insanity, right? You're just doing the same thing over and over and not having any success with it. And so if they're just going to continue to issue apologies, it doesn't really get us very far. We're just going to be talking about this on next year's podcast. And then there were eight. That's the number of
1: teams left in the OHL playoffs as is- We're just about to embark on round number two as this podcast is released. And our guest on this week's podcast, uh, unless you want to throw anything else in here before we start moving down this road, Popper, our guest on this podcast had an opportunity to participate in a Memorial Cup when he was an OHA champion with the St. Catharines Blackhawks. But that is just the tip of the iceberg with this guy this week. Holy cow.
0: Did we find ourselves a B-U-T? I when we finished the Sherry Bassin podcast, I thought to myself, no one's gonna be able to talk that long. I think if we didn't cut Rick Aduno off, he would have talked even longer than <laughs> Sherry Bassin. Yes. Uh Rick Aduno, he as you mentioned, went to the Memorial Cup with the St. Catharines Falcons, led the Blackhawks. Sorry, that's right, Blackhawks <laughs> Falcons Jr. B. Shout out Frank Gurney. Um, St. Catharines Blackhawks went to the Memorial Cup, led the OHA in scoring a year. Went to the WHA, played in the NHL, led the American League in scoring one year. But hockey accolades behind him. It is the storytelling of Rick Aduno that you are going to love. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick Smitty Aduno. So, Rick, the first question, obviously, I have to ask is, how does somebody with a name like Rick Aduno have the nickname Smitty? Well, it is a long story,
2: but I'll try and keep it short. Uh, I was drafted by the Ottawa 67s in the first round and uh, I had relatives that lived in St. Catharines and some good friends that lived there and uh, they basically, you know, I, I I would have loved to have gone to Ottawa, but you know what, they, I, they had some pretty strong centermen at that time and it's not an excuse, but I mean Blake Dunlop and some other good people and they were more of an older team and St. Catharines was promoting me to come live with my relatives and uh, you know, I thought it would be a good scenario and so I waited and waited and then they, so Ottawa I think ended up trading me to Sudbury uh, I think Ian Turnbull was involved in that trade somehow, some way and then we waited for a bit longer and I ended up getting traded to St. Catharines, but during that wait I had to sit out and I couldn't practice with anybody other than uh, Half Ems, who was the owner of St. Catharines at that time he arranged a deal with I believe Punch Imlach was with Buffalo then. I'm trying to remember who the GM was, but the coach was Joe Crozier. And they had given me a name of Joe Smith, and I didn't even know about it until the first practice because they had to give me a false name. Otherwise, I believe the NHL team would have lost a first-round draft pick or something of that nature if they found out that an underage player was training with Buffalo or a player that had been drafted and didn't go to where he was supposed to go. So I guess we were doing something illegal. So the first practice, I'm on the ice with Buffalo, because they trained in St. Catharines at that time. And so I was, I was in St. Catharines waiting to get approval on everything, and half them said, Rick, you're going to train with St. Catharines. So it, it was unbelievable. I mean, I'm, I'm on the ice with Richard Martin, Gilbert Perot, Tim Horton, and there was only one guy from Thunder Bay named Ron Buznick who was out there, a big, tough defenseman who ended up coaching me in senior hockey. But anyway, they were calling out the names at the start of practice for the lines and Joe Crozier goes Joe Smith and nobody's going. And all of a sudden it might've been Ronnie Buznick or somebody said, no, that's you. And I said, Oh me, I'm Joe Smith. And they said, yeah, as far as we know, that was the name beside your number. So I go there and, uh, uh, during the practice, they tell me that uh, my name was Joe Smith, so no one knew that I was Riccaduno practicing with the Buffalo Sabres while I was waiting to get uh, to get traded to St. Catharines. So. It's a
1: real real creative name they came up with for Rick Riccaduno, Joe Smith, eh?
2: <laughs> Joe Smith, exactly. <laughs> So then my buddy Davey Gorman, who was on my line for those three years in St. Catharines and Wolf Paymont and Rick Hampton and all these guys, and we did have a bunch of guys in our team. We had a great team, but we had a lot of clowns on the team that were good players, and trust me, I was one of the clowns back then too. And uh, they all started calling me Smitty right off the bat. So I didn't really care for that name, to be honest with you, but you know what? It's a great story about Joe Smith, and so that name has stuck with me in a lot of different teams in a lot of different cities because when the story gets told, they start calling me Smitty. <laughs> <laughs> and 50 years later,
1: you're still Smitty.
2: Yeah, 50 years later. Davey Gorman or somebody like that, if they called me or Wayne Dillon from Toronto would call me now, they'd say, hey, Smitty, how you doing? You know, it stuck with me in the world hockey too when I played in Birmingham. So you just live with it and it's a lot of fun and it's a lot of fun to tell the story.
1: So, obviously, lots of stories to get to with you, Rick, including the St. Catharines Blackhawks, which were part of the OHA, sort of the forerunner to the OHL, which is basically our focus here on the podcast. But you did mention uh, the name of a city, and I know it's where we're talking to you from right now. And I've got a bit of a soft spot in my heart for the Lakehead, Thunder Bay, because I worked up there for a spell. And I get it geographically, Rick, but I'm not so sure the league, the Ontario Hockey League, is better off without Thunder Bay being represented because it's a great hockey market, to say the very least.
2: Absolutely. As you know, uh, Thunder Bay is a great hockey market. And back then, I mean, it it was phenomenal. We actually had three teams in Thunder Bay, the Fort William Canadians, the Fort William Hurricanes, and the Port Arthur Mars. And we amalgamated into one team uh, because some teams, the Mars, Port Arthur Mars had the tough guys, we had the scoring line, and the Hurricanes had some good checkers and a few good players, also, and some good defensemen. So it worked out where my line was kind of the scoring line on the Balkans with Danny Gruen and my brother in law, Tom Milani. And we had Ogie Oglethorpe and Willie Trognitz, was our goon line. Uh, but they were also pretty good hockey players, too, at that time. And uh, Leif Foglin was on defense with Dennis Oucher, who to this day I still believe is the best hitter. I mean, you, you know, I'm, I'm really laying the uh, – uh, I'm playing with fire here, but I don't think anyone ever threw better shoulder checks in the history of the game than Dennis Ocher. And he ended three guys' careers, to my knowledge. One was Mike Robitaille. One was, I think, Dan Maloney, God bless them, uh, with his shoulder check. And in Smith Falls in the playoffs, he put actually four guys out of the game with shoulder checks, if you understand what I'm saying, he tell his offside defenseman or a strong side defenseman to step up a bit so that the winger would cut across with the puck into the middle in the neutral zone. And Dennis would come across with his shoulder on an angle and just catch them on their shoulder and part of the neck head area and put them out. And it was, I mean, you've never seen anything like it. And to this day, I've never seen anyone throw shoulder checks like that. Even all my years, over 20 years of coaching, I've never seen that. I've seen some great hip checks, but anyway, uh, the Thunder Bay Vulcans, we, we were just a, a, a great team, and we wanted to win the Centennial Cup so we could be in the OHL. And uh, what happened from there was we pretty much beat up on everybody during the regular season. Herb Brooks used to coach the, uh, the Minnesota Junior Stars, and we beat up on them by eight or nine goals every game here in Thunder Bay. And there was one time uh, they had to pull the Zamboni out on the ice to stop Goldie Goldthorpe from fighting at the end of the game. Uh, and the poor Minnesota guys, they didn't even want to fight. But, oh, wanted to fight everybody because he was mad at something. And uh, and good old Herb Brooks, he'd come to our house for spaghetti and meatballs after the game too because my dad ended up being good buddies with him. And so we had a good relationship with them. But, but, again, the Vulcans were so good that we could almost beat anybody in Canada. We beat the OHL teams, I think, five out of six games or, or eight out of ten that we played them. Oshawa, Niagara Falls, and there was a couple other teams we played, Saint Catharines, and we had a brawl every game. And it was simply because if Ogie Oglethorpe and Willie Trognitz and Lee Fogland didn't like what the other team was doing, they'd lay the law down and boy, oh boy, they just wanted to get out of Thunder Bay as quick as they could and we'd do all the scoring and the you know, that would be the end of it. So I think the OHO was a bit afraid of Thunder Bay coming in and then we had to go to we played Guelph in the playoffs that year after we would beat out Smith Falls. And uh, we uh, we played Guelph here in Thunder Bay. We had a big brawl. Guelph players wanted to go home. I believe their coach wanted to go home. But they got outvoted, I think it was by one vote, by players to stay and play game five, I think it was, in Thunder Bay, because we'd been beaten up on them pretty good. And uh, they ended up beating us, I think it was, I don't know, 5-4, 6-4 four, four in game five, because we were just we were too high on ourselves because we'd heard about the vote to go home. We go to Guelph to play game six, I believe it was, or I'm trying to remember, but I know it was either game six or seven, but I thought we had the home ice advantage. I'm trying to remember. But anyway, the rink was packed in Guelph. People were literally, Guelph had give us these plates, representing the city of Guelph, and uh, somehow people got a hold of them, and they were breaking them, and they were throwing golf balls on the ice in the warm-ups. They were throwing things at us. They were calling us names. We had to get off the ice; it was so bad, and sit in the dressing room. And our coach, who was one of the toughest coaches, Albert Cava, that you would ever meet in hockey, and a tremendous person. He's passed away at this time, but he, you know him and a guy named Max mikulak who was a great player and a manager, was Mo Irving, and um, they pulled us off the ice. And when we went off the ice, they told us to come back out, and if we didn't, if we couldn't go back out because Albert wouldn't let us because our players were in danger. And they dropped the puck at center ice, and we could literally hear them in the dressing and go down score the goal five on zero and win the series. And uh, that's that was the end of the Thunder Bay Vulcans, and we were well on the way to winning the Centennial Cup, but there was just so much that had happened in that series, and you know guys injured, and actually one of our best wingers, Tom Milani, couldn't play that series because of a scholarship rule back then. You could not play junior hockey after April, a certain April date. But anyway, we, I still believe we would have won, but that was what happened. They dropped the puck five on, all went down. We got a police escort with some fire trucks or something back to the hotel and we were on the plane back to Thunder Bay the next day. It was very disheartening and Guelph went on to win the Centennial Cup if I'm not mistaken that year.
0: That's crazy. There's obviously a lot to unpack there not including Herb Brooks having dinner at your house. <laughs> right? We'll, we'll spaghetti get to, and meatballs? Yeah, we'll what? get to that in a
2: second. <laughs> but Herb but, Brooks was awesome. He was awesome. I invited him to a golf tournament in Thunder Bay for a celebrity golf tournament to raise money for our A team. Our AAA teams in Thunder Bay and for... Uh, for the George Jeffrey Center here in Thunder Bay, and we'd help bring in pro players. And you know what? I was really blessed with having so many friends. Uh, we brought in John Winsink, who was my old winger. We brought in Larry Patey, Rob uh, Rob Ramage, Rick Vive, uh, uh, all those guys, a lot of guys I'd played pro with. Like the uh, Hanson brothers, who I'd played against and played with, they came, a couple of them came, and uh, they had their foil on. And Herb Brooks said he couldn't make it. All of a sudden, we're on the sixth and he's driving up in a golf cart waving at me. He's going, Rick, I'm late, but I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) That's the kind of guy Herbie Brooks was. And, uh, you know, it was just phenomenal, you know, to have all those players. Stan Jonathan came uh, to come to Thunder Bay and raise that money. It it was just, it was great. But uh, again, you know, I'm blessed to have met so many great people in hockey, like, you know, John Brophy, all these people that I've met, Hap Ems and St. Catharines, who was our owner. And HAP was a real stickler. My dad had to send me boxes of tape for my shin pads because HAP didn't supply tape, just rubber bands for your shin pads. Uh, you would I can't remember if we'd get sticks or not, but you had to use your own tape, and my box of tape would come in, and all the boys would be going, "Hey, can I have a roll of tape, Let me a roll of tape And we'd be in the locker room laughing and uh, But you know what? We rolled with the punches, and we just kept winning. I think we went through the whole OHL playoffs without win- losing a game that year.
1: I think the other name that jumped out at us besides Herb Brooks was Ogie Oglethorpe. Like, Obviously. Right? That Not not like the Ogie Oglethorpe, like the real Ogie Oglethorpe or something like that.
2: Well, I'll tell you what. The <laughs> Bill, Bill Goldthorpe, we called him Goldie all the time. And he would, uh, if you did something wrong with him, like even if when I played against him the year before, if, if you haven't taken a face off against him, he'd literally look at you with those piercing eyes and the Blonde hair, curly blonde hair hanging all over the place, and he'd just look at you and go, Touch that puck, and I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and, and you just you want to say, Okay, you can have it, no problem, and hope that you'd get it back later in the shift, eh? And uh, no, but let me tell you, he was the true Bill Goldthorpe, Ogie Oglethorpe, tougher than the Og- Ogie Oglethorpe in the movie, no question about it in my mind. And uh, his counterpart, Willie Trognitz, was just as tough. But uh, I remember Goldie offering, I played with the junior Canadians, and then the next year, Goldie played with the Mars the same year. And he'd try and run me all the time, and then the next year we're on the same team. And I had one year more seniority in junior hockey, and we both wore number 18. Well, Goldie cornered me after practice one day, told me, I'm wearing number 18, whether you like it or not. So I didn't know what the heck to do. I wasn't going to fight him for it. So I went to Coach Albert Cava, who was uh, the toughest guy on the team, tougher than anybody. And he said, "Don't worry, Rick. I'll look after it." So he did. And the next day, Goldie come up to me at practice. He goes, "You know what, Aduno? You're lucky that Albert Cab is the only guy that I'm afraid of in this world."
0: <laughs> now so did
2: I got yeah? So I got number eighteen, and uh, and then we were all good. It was all good.
0: Did Ogie, or Bill did <laughs> did he do the stick? Like the stick blade in the eye, like they did in slap shot. Did he ever carve someone's eye out with the blade of a stick?
2: Well, trust me, you know what? I mean, it's not a thing that you think about doing. But back then, when we played junior hockey, honest, honest, and I'm telling you, that, that was said all the time. You know, I'll take your eye out. I'll spear you. I'll take your leg off. I'll break your leg. I'll break your arm. And uh, you know, those were all the things that you, you know, you had to. Uh, worry about you never really thought about and we didn't know about visors back then but I'll tell you what I had more sticks in the face than lack of a better term that you could shake a stick at I got uh, broken noses cuts below my eye cuts above my eye on my chin on the side of my face and it's from different people half of them are probably from the same pl- uh, players on my own team but Ogie was he was the greatest guy in the world off the ice on the ice trust me, you, you, you didn't want to be around, you know, what he would do to you if, uh, if they were losing, you know, and he uh, Goldie would actually skate around in the warmups, kind of with his skates at 10 to two, when he got to the red line, looking at you and just gliding and saying, "Oh, know, I'm going to kill you. or I'm going to kill you. And I met him one time in the American league two playing for new Haven. And the guys were saying to me, are, are we going to be okay tonight? Goldie's your buddy. Can you tell him, leave us alone. And, uh, he just skated by the red line, and he said, Ricky, you know what? I told all the guys on New Haven here, don't be afraid of you because you're just a bone rack. <laughs> 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 and I said, okay, Goldie, whatever, eh? But uh, but you know what? Goldie was the type of guy. He waited for me after the game to shoot the breeze. And uh, But on, you guys wouldn't believe half the brawls we had in Thunder Bay where, you know, uh, Goldie would jump into the stands. We had one in Smith Falls where... He was taking a face-off, and the fans were bugging him, leaning over the boards because there was no glass, and we were winning by a big score. He just dropped his gloves and his sticks and jumped into the stands and started fighting (laughs) and uh, got thrown out of the game. Yeah, he just dove into the stands, and then our management was there. Even our management in Guelph, one of our our managers uh, sitting in the stands, and my wife back then, who was my girlfriend at 16, and then we got married at 17, uh, she was there and uh, one of our managers got his foot broken. The fan grabbed his seat and slapped it up against his foot when he stood on the seat, and he broke his foot. And, uh, I mean, there there was a lot of rough stuff that went on. We had brawls in Minnesota against Herbie Brooks' team. You know, fans would come behind the bench, and our coach would jump over the glass to fight them because they didn't (laughs) like fans yelling at us because we were tough. So, you know what? Honest to God, any movies you see on TV that are Thunder Bay Bombers or Brawls or Thunder Bay Vulcans and Ogie Oglethorpe, I don't even I think they were even way more fighting than was going on in the movie Slapshot. I'll tell way you more.
1: Incredible stuff. So let let's get to uh the most memorable, I would think, season with the St. Catharines Blackhawks. After you've had your illegal stint with the Buffalo Sabres, you settle into the OHA with St. Catharines under Hap M's and in your seventy three seventy four season, it's the second highest scoring team in the Ontario Hockey Association. you Like, you cruised, Rick, through the playoffs that year. It was like nine points to one over Oshawa. You you shut out, you sweep uh, the Toronto Marlboros, who are the defending champs, eight points to none. Then it's nine points to one over Peterborough, and you're on your way to the Memorial Cup. What was that entire season and, and that experience, especially at the Memorial Cup out West, like for you?
2: You know what? It was phenomenal. Like, back then, we you know, we didn't even... We just... It was a case of... You know, we just, uh, and back then, there, it wasn't all about systems and everything. You know, you, you played some defensive hockey. You, you just played to win the game. And you, you either were tough enough or you weren't or you're mentally strong enough. But we just had such good players and players that worked hard. And, uh, you know, we had Wolf Paymont playing. Uh, sometimes he'd be on our line with Davey Gorman and I. Other times he'd be on, on another line just scoring because he could literally walk out of the corners himself uh, and score goals. You know, so it almost didn't matter who was playing center with Wilf. I think a young guy named Greg Craig at that time was playing with him. Uh, but Dave Gorman and myself, Paul Ems used to say that we were like hand in glove, how we fit together. And uh, we could we could pass the puck to each other, not even having to look. And sometimes we, him and I would joke around on the bus saying, you know what, we're not scoring tonight unless it's a pretty goal. It's got to <laughs> be a pretty goal. Or if you're in Maple Leaf Gardens, it had to be in the corner where the scouts sat because everybody kind of knew where the scouts sat in Maple Leaf Gardens. So you'd score a goal, then you'd hug, and you'd go, "What are the scouts doing right now? Are they looking at us or what?" You know, and and you get to see your name go across the big ticker at the back of Maple Leaf Gardens. Do you remember that?
1: I do, absolutely, yeah. I do.
2: And we used to love that. But you know what? We just we had a great camaraderie. Like I said, we had a bunch of guys that loved to have fun, but we had guys that liked to compete, and. uh you know, we go to the more, and we had a great young goaltender named Bill Sharapata. Who, uh, you know, I, I, at the Memorial Cup, none of us played the way we needed to play at the Memorial Cup. Again, we were too big for our bridges, I think, and uh, we we needed to be a little bit more disciplined at the Memorial Cup and and take and we took it serious. There's no doubt about it. But if I could ever have anything back in my life, it would be to play that Memorial Cup over again. Uh, you know, I remember facing off against Dennis Sobchuk with Regina Pats. And he had dollar signs on his hockey gloves, you know, when you're facing off. <laughs> He'd signed with Cincinnati. But, I mean, they had a great team. Uh, the Regina Pats, uh, the Quebec Ramparts had a good team. But, you know what, we, again, we kind of blew it ourselves. But, uh, boy, we, we had a lot of fun. It was a good year. So how, how do you walk through the OHL like that? You know, I, I don't know. But, you know what I think helped us? I think the year before, we got, we got beat pretty good by some other teams. And we learned how to play. And uh, we were really up for giving it to the Toronto Marlboros because they'd always been the heap of the pile, the best on the top of the pile. And we wanted to, we wanted to beat them. And even Oshawa, they had Bill LaHead and Brian Kinsella. If I can remember those two guys were great players. And it's really funny because when I went to coach in Germany, who's the agent calling me to sign some of his players? Bill LaHead. <laughs> you know, what a crazy world, you know. And uh, Peterborough. I love going into Peterborough, playing against Roger Nielsen. Peterborough was always known back then as a real quiet rink. We joke about that. But they were so disciplined. They were so ahead of their time with systematic stuff uh, uh, with Roger. It was just nobody knew Roger was going to be that high profile, and and he was high profile then. If I can remember, I scored a goal off uh, off a face-off against Doug Jarvis. I knocked the puck about a foot out of the air when the referee was dropping the puck, or six inches, pardon me. Knocked it out of the air before the puck hit the ice top shelf, and they were trying to say it's illegal because the puck didn't hit the ice yet. I'll always remember that against Peterborough. But to beat the Peets without them winning a game, that, that was phenomenal.
0: I'm curious, Rick, what it was like as a 17-year-old heading to St. Catharines, obviously coming from Thunder Bay and being away from home, but also you're just two years removed from Marcel Dion leaving that franchise. Was there comparisons between you and Marcel?
2: You know what? Uh, It's funny that you even bring that up. I I said to my wife after we got off the phone, I said, you know, how how do they remember this stuff? But all they talked about when I got there uh, was I was a first-round OHL draft pick, supposed to go to Ottawa, went to St. Kitts. I was going to replace Marcel Dion, this big-time scorer. They talk about him and the Cullen brothers, and they talk about Dick Redmond on the point, because sometimes I'd play the point on the power play too, and I was lucky enough to have a really good shot back then. And uh, it, it was always a comparison. And I, I never let it faze me, to tell you the truth, because, you know, I had a great, Davey Gorman was a great hockey player, great puck handler and smooth as old heck. And he could score a goal or make a play just looking the other way. And, and, and Wolf Paymont was just so strong on the puck. So, I mean, I, I had a lot of help, but I just, as a 17-year-old going into St. Catharines, yes, uh, I, I was nervous. I played here in Thunder Bay. I never lived away from home before. And I, you know what, I can honestly say this at this time. Uh, I was a bit of a homebody, so I would get, uh, I, you know, didn't like to be away from home. And I had my girlfriend, and we actually we got married that year in November. And uh, I, I can honestly say, without my wife, I'm not sure if I would have won the scoring championship. I'm not sure if I would have stuck it out. It just happened to be one of those things that I had. She was great support for me, and I loved to be at home in our little apartment every night. And I worked delivering TVs every day below at the Electronic Service Center in St. Catharines until practice. And uh, I think I lived on $60 a week plus 40 that I made from the TV store. That's what we lived on. And we'd buy the monthly issue of Sports Illustrated to see where I was rated in the NHL draft. And I'd always get ticked off because Pierre LaRouche was ahead of me a little bit, I think, <laughs> at that time. <laughs>
1: well, you know, that makes me think of something else. You said earlier, Rick, that one regret, if you could play that 74 Memorial Cup over again, you would. You you had the chance to not just play in the NHL. Yeah, it was the cup of coffee, as we call it, but but with the Boston Bruins under Don Cherry, of all things. But I wonder, considering when you came out of the OHL, like there was a lot of money, a lot of money being thrown around in the World Hockey Association. Do you ever look back on that and say, maybe I should have chased some cash over there?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely, I, uh, you know, and they were, I, 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 you know, we were in the Memorial Cup, and I had an, an agent named Norm Kaplan. I, I was, I probably, Norm was a great guy. I probably should have went with Frank Milne, who was my coach. He turned agent, but I'd already taken Norm, and then we went to the Memorial Cup, and Norm Kaplan had me these World Hockey deals ready to sign. He had me Cincinnati, uh, he had me, I believe it was uh, Phoenix. Uh, he had me a couple of other. He, he even. Now I don't know if this could have happened, but he even told me that Atlanta was going to take me as an underager and sign me and keep me in junior, if I can recall. I think that was – and uh, there was a secret draft that year by the WHA, if I'm not mistaken, and the NHL might have been a telephone draft. And I got taken in the second round by the San Diego Mariners. But the San Diego Mariners, my uncle had played there. They had called me many times before the WHA draft and offered me a contract. And I can tell you, they offered me – 300,000 for three years. And I think Phoenix had offered like four or 500,000 for two years. And Cincinnati was talking about that million dollar deal at 100,000 for 10 years that Dennis Sobchuk got. And uh, so all this was flying around. And I think I could have signed any one of those before the Memorial Cup. And I didn't. And I switched to Al Eagleson. And I really liked Al. Al seemed very professional. But You know what? It just didn't turn out for me. Uh, We didn't have a great Memorial Cup. Uh, I switched to Al. He said, stay junior one more year and I'll double or triple your money. And I didn't want to because I was married. And uh, then I got hurt. I got hurt uh, 10 games into the season. I still remember. I think it was Mike Kazicki hit me behind the net. And I kind of tore my knee up. So I was out for a month or a few weeks. And my knee kept giving out on me the whole year. And I think I only ended up with like 67 points, which is not a bad season. But from going from 135 to 67, I think, uh, and I remember going to Boston when they drafted me. I didn't go to the third round or early fourth. And uh, it was number 60 overall, I think. And I had to go uh, to the hospital in Boston and get my knee looked at before I could even get a contract. But I still back then, I, San Diego still made me another offer. And uh, Al advised me to stay the NHL route, and I didn't take it. And I got basically, you know, uh, basically nothing with Boston, like a very little signing bonus. Uh, I was, I think, I won the, I won the American League scoring uh, back in what was it seventy four? I think I made fourteen thousand five hundred dollars wow. in the American League back then. Yeah,
1: you know, again. you you mentioned another. Big and well-known name there in Alan Eagleson. Did he know your name, though, Rick?
2: <laughs> you know what? Al knew me very well. It's funny you say that. Knew me very well when he came down to... We actually all met at Lee Fogland's camp in Thunder Bay. Nelson Piatt, Lee Fogland, myself, uh, uh, Lynn Jorgensen. There was a whole bunch of guys from Dennis Ocher we were all having our contracts negotiated then by Al and we had a steak barbecue and everything and everything was great, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, I I, I didn't get that much money and uh, so I was really disappointed. But then the next year, when I won the, I went to the uh, uh, American Hockey League, Boston sent me to Rochester. And I went there and I had a good season that year and I think I still had Al then. But it wasn't. It was just a decent year. I didn't play much. Then the next year, I won the scoring. And I went down, down Toronto. I was walking downtown Toronto. I was going to see Al at his office to see what was going to happen because I thought, you know, I deserved to make some more money. And he was about a hundred yards from me. Then he got closer to me, and I'm yelling, Al, Al. And he's looking at me, looking at me like, who the hell are you? And you had an and, you appointment know, I, with him, didn't you? What's that? But you
1: had an appointment with him at his office. Yes. Yeah, he knew yes. you're coming. <laughs>
2: Yeah, he knew I was coming. And I was I was kind of disappointed when I got in the car with my wife after. I said, you know what, we met with Alan Thunder Bay last year. We had many conversations with him. Uh, actually, my money from Rochester would go to them because they would look after your money and kind of budget you and stuff. And, uh, you know, and then when he when I he got, he got about 10 yards away from me, I said, it's Rick Aduno. Oh, 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 oh Rick. I said, yeah, well, I got a meeting with you. Oh, yeah, that's right, that's right. So... <laughs> You know, we had our meeting, and I told him, you know, do something or whatever, and uh, nothing really happened. And then Billy Waters called me, Bill, who's a great guy. Still love Bill to this day. He said, Rick, I'm leaving Al. Uh, You know what? You're going to stay with me. I think I can do you better. And I stayed with Bill. And that's when Bill got me the contract with the uh, Birmingham Bulls. And, again, that was a crazy story, too, because (laughs) – I, uh, Bill had me a contract with the GM, Paul LaRose of the Indianapolis Racers, after I won the scoring in the American Hockey League. And uh, I think Paul LaRose was the GM of Indy, and they, they'd given me a tentative contract for 75000 a year, I believe it was, for two years. I think it was a 75000 signing bonus. And then Bill called me about a week or two later and said, Rick, you know what, I've got to apologize. I'm really sorry. that they're, they're taking this off the table. They don't have room. They decided they're going to, because I hadn't signed it yet, they decided they were signing this guy out of Sault Ste. Marie to a $1.7 million deal or something, and I'm going, well, Bill, come on, how could they sign a player out of junior hockey when I won the American League scoring? And I said, who is, who is this guy? You know? And he goes, well, his name's Wayne Gretzky. He's a pretty good player. Right? You know, <laughs> but, yeah. And I, honest to God, like, yeah, he won the OHL scoring, and well, so did Boos Boudreaux and, and a lot of other guys, but how could this guy be worth this kind of money? And he's just a scrawny guy, kind of like I was. And uh, so it, I didn't have my contract and all the power to Wayne because I certainly doubted him the wrong way. I'll tell you, I actually played against him uh, the, uh, in the second exhibition game that we we played Indianapolis Racers. And I thought, wow, I still can't believe they signed this guy over me. But then once he started playing with Edmonton, I could see how he was, become, he was only 17 years old. And uh, But anyway, to add to that story, Two weeks later, I'm still working in Thunder Bay, putting in furnaces with my father on a Saturday morning, and I I had no idea what was going on. I thought I was going back to the American League or what, and I opened the paper in Thunder Bay and looked under transactions, because back then there was no computer stuff, basically, and it said uh, Birmingham Bulls sign Aduno. and I'm looking at this having breakfast at the Husky restaurant in Thunder Bay, and I said to my dad, holy cow, something's wrong here. I better phone Bill Waters, so I had to go home, because there's no cell phones phoned him and he goes oh was that in the paper I said yeah he goes well John Bassett must have put the deal through Rick I negotiated a deal for you to go to Birmingham and I guess I didn't call you because I didn't want this to happen again so I was waiting till it all got approved so he said don't worry about it it's all good this time so I found out in the newspaper before Bill even told me so went to Birmingham and it was it was all good it was all good when I went to Birmingham and played in the world hockey
0: but you're in Birmingham, and that team, when you just look at the, the roster from Pat Riggin, the former uh, London Knights goaltender, Dave Hansen, one of the Hansen brothers, uh, Rob Ramage, Craig Hartsburg, Paul Henderson, yourself, Rick Vive, that's quite the team. But the, par, or the name that sticks out to me is obviously the head coach and John Brophy. This guy is legendary and just countless stories about John Brophy. What do you have for us about John Brophy?
2: You don't have enough time in the day for me to tell you about John Brophy. You do not. I, I love that man. And all those names that you just mentioned, and even more, Michelle Goulet, uh, Louis Slager, uh, uh, Crowder, played for Boston. Anybody from that team, you ask them about John Brophy, they'll say, we love John Brophy. And he would scare the heck out of you in practice between periods tell you he was going to knock the shit out of you if you didn't do things right battle but you know what he'd be the first guy when you won a game or you did something good to give you a hug and tell you that he loved you that's the kind of guy he was and he would there was times that you would come off the ice in Birmingham and Davey Gorman would be if I didn't play on Davey's line like sometimes I played with Brick Vibe and Michelle Goulet for about a month and uh, they would laugh too like we we just had so much fun that year with those young kids. But Davy Gorman was laughing. He was literally crying on the bench when I when I came off the ice one time and I wasn't having a good game and I said, Davy, what what are you laughing at? Don't laugh at me and he goes, Oh Smitty, you should have heard brof when you were out there that shift. He's going I can't even use the words, eh? But he's going, What's wrong with Smitty out there? What the heck is wrong with that Smitty out there? Is he drunk? Is he did he come to play drunk tonight or what's going on here?
0: <laughs> Were you?
2: Uh, No, (laughs) but those are the things that Brof would say, you know. Uh, There was another time I was the captain in Birmingham, all due to Paul Henderson because Paul thought I was really mature and Paul liked the way I played and how hard I worked and I loved playing with Paul also. He'd give me heck every time I swore because he was a reborn Christian. But uh, Brof called me in the office one time and he was mad at Davey Gorman and he said, Smitty, I have no idea what to do with Davy. What a great hockey player! What a great. But I tell him not to cut in the middle. And what does he do? He cuts in the middle. He cuts in the middle. And I'm not going to play him if he cuts in the middle. And he says, You know what? Furthermore, I tried to get into his head. Can you tell me what's in there? And I said, No, he's my best buddy. But I said, I'm not sure what to do, both. So I could talk to him. He goes, Well, I'll give you my advice, Smitty. You know what? Get a get a giant machete. Cut his head right down the middle and see what the hell's going on in there. (laughs) (laughs) So so what do I do? I go back in the let dressing room and tell the guys all what everything Brof said to me. And the guys in the dressing room were rolling on the floor laughing and we're just having a great old time. And you know, but those are just some of the small stories about Brof. I mean, he'd even say the same thing about Rick Bivs. You know, Rick would do he'd fight Semenko all the time, and Brof would tell him not to fight Semenko because he was going to get beat up. But Squid would say, "Don't worry about it, Brof." And that's actually how he got his name, Squid. Brof was so flustered because we called him Spud when he came from junior. And Brof was so flustered because Squid got knocked out in Edmonton. First shift, they dropped the puck. Him and Semenko are talking. I'm going, Squid, don't fight him. He's going, don't worry about it. I said, Squid, he's going to kill you. And Semenko goes, yeah, I am. And they dropped the puck and they dropped their gloves. And Semenko hits Squid with a couple of punches and knocks him out cold. So Squid's in the lo- – they bring him into the dressing room. We go in between periods. And he's still kind of a little bit woozy sitting there. And Brof walks in and he's mad because we're getting killed. We're losing like 5 nothing. And Brof, Brof looks at the trainer and he goes, he's, he's all mad because we needed 5 in the game. And Brof's going to the trainer. He's going, Donnie, Donnie, is that squid guy over there, squid, whatever the heck you call him, is he okay? He was trying to say spud, but he said squid. so. We ended up calling him Squid after that. We said, hey, you've got a new nickname. You're not Squid anymore. You're
0: Squid. <laughs> <laughs> I love it.
2: <laughs> so, and you know what? We'd sit around the airport for hours with Birmingham waiting for flights, and Brof would tell us stories, and we would laugh. And he'd tell us about when he played in the East Coast Hockey League, how he'd tell guys if he got beat one-on-one, he'd literally tell the guy, come by me again. I'm breaking your leg this shit. <laughs> you know? And, and so we would just howl. There was just, Oh, again, I could tell you forever, but great people, even those guys, I don't, I don't think they will ever be that again. That many 18 year olds on one team in the world hockey that we had, they were all first round picks. Uh, I, I never talked to so many NHL scouts in my life that year. I, I was almost like a, Hey, what about me? Cause they, either call me or get my phone number or see me in a hotel and say, well, who would you think is better? Vibe, Goulet, or us forwards? and on, You know, they'd ask you questions, eh? So they all brought so much different to the table that it was unbelievable.
0: What were Crazy practices you know. like with Brof?
2: It was great. I mean, he would, you know, there wasn't a lot of systems back then. If we didn't win, there were some practices we'd have, and Brof would have us, like, kind of line up at the red line dump a puck in two guys go fight for it and but you had to go hard and you had to play the body on your way into the corner and if you didn't then you probably wouldn't play that night and there, there was one practice we had before the playoffs that brof made us do that drill and we lost like three guys with injured shoulders or injured knees or something like that and brof just goes hey you know what? that's the way it is sorry that's the way it is <laughs> you, you, you got to battle for the puck you don't like it too bad we'll win without them no problem you know
0: three guys in one practice
2: yeah yeah absolutely three guys in one practice he would brof would literally get so mad if you didn't give everything you had his face would go red and there'd be he had white hair but there'd be white steam coming out of his ears and that's what it looked like eh? and there was there's even sometimes brof would jump in as a d-man and we'd all be worried about going down on him one-on-one because he'd love to do one-on-one and he'd jump in as a d-man because you knew you were going to get speared or two-handed or smashed across the wrist. And, guys, we'd be in line in the corner going, I'm not going. Are you going? No, you go. So we'd have to send a big defenseman. But then there was one time Davey Gorman, <laughs> Davey was always, he was always, uh, and the, the young kids in Birmingham loved Davey. He'd say, you know what, guys, I'm going to go down. Fake going around Brof, and I'm going to snap a wrist shot at his shins, because he's got no shin pads on it. So he'd go down on Brof, snap the wrist shot, caught him in the shins, with no and Brof's, Brof's trying not to limp around the ice because he doesn't want to show he's hurt, and we're all kind of just chuckling, eh? So, just little things like that. That uh, I don't think you can get away with any of this stuff nowadays. But, but, but we loved them. We loved them. Brof would be on the punching bag sometimes in the morning when we got to the rink. In the <laughs> punching bag.
1: Was there was there a time, Rick, you ever found yourself on like obviously the ultimate player's coach here? But did you ever get on his bad side?
2: Uh, yeah, I did one game. Uh, He was mad at me. He was mad at Davey Gorman and I, for some reason in Indianapolis. Actually had, we didn't play very good one night in Indy. He got mad at us. uh, And um, he called, he told the radio guy, Eli Gold, who was a great guy also. Eli went on to a great career. All radio
1: guys are great guys, Rick. Let's just be clear about that.
2: (laughs) I've met more of those guys in my life. And I, I love seeing them on TV now doing TV and, and, and radio and, and games in the NHL. But, you know what? So many good guys. But, yeah, he had Eli come and tell us, you guys are going back on a different flight than the rest of the team tomorrow from Indianapolis. So I'm all mad. And Davey Gorman's going, Smitty, that's awesome. We can go out tonight. We can go out and stay out. We can get back in the hotel late, catch a different flight back. Eh? And Davey could do that and still play great the next day. And i say, Davey, I'm the captain. I can't do that. Too late now. He's going, we're on, we're on our way home on a different flight. So I went and tried to talk bro out of it in the hotel room, and he wouldn't let me. And then I think we played in Birmingham that next two nights later. I can't remember who we played, but I went into Brose's office and told him, please put us in the lineup. Cause I was still going for the scoring lead in the league at that time. And we needed, I think we needed to win it to, to uh, get a better spot in the playoffs. And uh, I went in his office and honest to God, I was a pro I played for him for a couple of years and Davey Gorman came in with me and I'm trying to talk him into letting us play. And he wouldn't let us play. He was so mad at us and, I started to get tears in my eyes. I said, bro, come on. you got to let me play. I'm the captain. I'm, I'm not going in front of my guys not playing tonight. And Davey Gorman goes, you know what, bro? He goes, let Smitty play tonight. I don't care if I play. Let Smitty play. Give me a night off. <laughs> so bro said, no, Davey, I'm not letting him play. He says, Davey, you and Smitty go up in the press box, watch the game, have a few drinks, enjoy it before the playoffs start. We already had a playoff spot, but we'd slipped a couple spots. So we go up in the press box in Birmingham. We watch the game. We have a couple of beers. We probably had one too many. <laughs> <laughs> Brof gets thrown out of the game with about 10 minutes left in the third period. He gets thrown out of the game and the players are waving up at us in the press box to come down and coach. And Davey's going, I can't go. I can't go. He's going, you go. So I said, okay, because I was the captain. I went down. That was the start of my coaching career. <laughs> I went behind the bench. I'd had a few beers too many, and I'm back behind there coaching the Birmingham Bulls while Broke's out of the game. And I'm thinking, wow, this is unbelievable. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I, I guess it's the start of my coaching career. Amazing. <laughs> did
0: you win? Uh,
2: yes, we did. Oh, nice. <laughs> we did. I remember. We did win because Broke shook my hand after the game. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And I said, bro, you you know, uh, he he just, and you know what? He disciplined us. He didn't want to sit us out, but that's the kind of guy he was. He was just, he'd give you that hug. And, uh, you know, I really meant, I I can tell you a quick story about him. This is pretty, it's a funny story. Um, I was coaching in the East Coast Hockey League, the Greensboro Generals. And I coached South Carolina for seven years prior to that. We'd won the Kelly Cup there in South Carolina. I left South Carolina after seven years, went to Greensboro, tried to save the franchise. The owners asked me to come. I went there. It was a tough job. But, you know, I was lucky that I was able to nab some good players who kind of thought, you know, it would be good to play for Riccaduno. Um, I phoned Brof one day because I re- was going after a guy named Mark Turner, who you guys might remember. He was, he was working with, a little bit with Windsor years ago too. Mark was a great center iceman. Very smart, very skilled, very mature. Played in Mobile for about five years. So I'm putting this team together, and Mark was 36 or 37 then. And I said, Brof, can you tell me if I should sign Mark Turner? What do you think? He's 36 years old. He goes, oh, Smitty, you know what? That guy's a great player. He's a great player. I said, he's 36, Brof. He goes, you know what, Smitty? The puck has no idea how old he is.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what a line <laughs>
2: yeah so i started laughing i said bro you know what i'm signing them just because you said that and then there was there was one other one he was going to speak at a, a, a in uh, antigonish nova scotia i think it was antigonish bro went was going to speak and his car ran off the road and i'm not sure if you know this but he ran into he ran off the road and he was badly hurt he broke his ribs. He broke his cheekbone. He lost the sight in one eye, I think. He was in rough shape. He was not going to make it. I called Al McIsaac, who was a good buddy of mine. I said, Al, can I have Brof? We talked about Brof. I said, could I have his phone number? I phoned him in the hospital. And I said, you know, Brof, how you doing? He goes, oh, Smitty, you know what? I was just thinking about you. I mean, how could he just be thinking about me? I haven't <laughs> talked to him for about a year. But I said, how are you doing, Brof? Are you okay? He said, are you okay? I said, I said, you okay? He goes, yeah, I'm okay. And we started talking about hockey. He said, you know, Smitty, I'm I'm going to be okay, I think. We started talking about hockey and we're talking about different things. And I said, bro, if you know what, you know what really gets me today in hockey? I said, if a guy gets a concussion and, and you don't even see him get hit, you're wondering like, what the heck's going on? Guys miss games for nothing, you know, nowadays. And I said, just like you know, I, some guys I didn't even see get hit, and they're telling me they got a concussion or something. And I know that's probably not the right thing to say right now, but this was years ago. And bro says to me, he goes, Smitty, come on. Are you kidding me? Concussion? He goes, you know what? Two nights ago, I drove off the road. I hit every rock you could possibly hit. I hit every tree you could possibly hit. He says, I got a broken chest. I got a broken cheek. I, I'm not sure if I lost my eye, but I don't have a concussion. <laughs>
0: oh my goodness
1: okay we got it because I kind of glossed over this before and I mean like you you were right we could talk John Brophy stories all night but there's another coach in here that I glossed over before however brief the NHL career was three games with the Atlanta Flames and that one game with the Boston Bruins but those were the big bad Bruins Smitty and Don Cherry was the coach what was it like walking into arena being on the ice in front of Don Cherry as your coach
2: I mean, you you were nervous. There's no two ways about it. You were nervous. It, even the practice rink in in uh, Worcester or Fitchburg, where we were, Lemonster, Mass. Uh, in practice, some days that rink would literally be packed. It would literally be packed. I think it's see, the practice rink we did in training camp. I think I, if I I could be mistaken, but I think it was around 2,500, 3,000. Sometimes it'd be packed to see Bobby Orr, Phil Esposito, uh, Bobby Schmutz, Carol Vadney, Johnny Busick, all these guys practicing. Kenny Hodge. I mean, it was. It was phenomenal. Walking into the dressing room in training camp, seeing Bobby Orr being the first guy in the room, half-dressed, sitting there, getting ready for practice, you know, like first guy there, uh, you know, uh, walking, seeing all the sticks lined up with all those names. And those are guys I idolized, and I had those guys that I was playing my table hockey game with, and I'm on the ice with these guys now, and I always dreamed of playing with the Boston Bruins. It, It was unbelievable. And I had to pick a stick because they have to get your pattern back then. We were lucky to start getting a pattern. I walked by, I looked at the names. I seen Orr, I pulled it out. I said, you know what, I'm using that. I'm my <laughs> well, I why not? In, I won the scoring in the American League, and I said, oh, I want my pattern just like that, and I'm going to tape it just like that. And that. Oh, no, I know, I I hadn't won the scoring yet because I got sent to Rochester. But that's how I, I, I used his pattern, had my name put on it, and that's the pattern I used my whole career, was Bobby Orr's pattern. And, uh, you know, my first first practice, you know, you were kind of doing some three on O's or whatever, just moving the puck, going up and down the ice. And uh, I had Johnny Busick on one wing and Kenny Hodge on the other, and I could barely pass the puck. I was so nervous. You know, you're thinking, is that going to be nice enough for them or good enough? And, you know, it was and then you see Don Cherry blowing the whistle and, uh, you know, everybody at center ice and you just in awe looking around. And uh, those are the days kind of when everybody would kind of get together after practice and they're wasn't an awful lot of off-ice workouts it was just practice hard on the ice so guys would go for some drinks together after practice and talk and you get to know the team that way i mean it was good team building but sometimes you know you have a few too many drinks trying to impress the older guys but that doesn't work because you feel terrible the next day you get on the ice for uh, training camp (laughs) but you but you, you get experience and you live and learn and players have changed now you know, and because you know you got to be at your best. But to see all those special people like Harry Sinden, all the scouts that I knew, Barton Bradley from Thunder Bay. And even there, I wasn't having a good training camp, but Barton Bradley grabbed me after practice one day and said, Rick, you're staying out with me, and I'm going to show you what to do to stay in the American Hockey League because you're not ready for the Bruins yet. And that's what I did. I'd stay out with Barton every day after practice and uh, do some net drive drills because I was a good hand on the puck, but little things to to know how to play in the National Hockey League. But it was just amazing how guys could be that good, even though the pace isn't the same as it is now. But the toughness level, I'll tell you what, guys, it was so tough back then. It was crazy how tough guys were. You know, playing against playing against the Broad Street Bullies before they went to Philadelphia when they played in Richmond, you know, uh, that was crazy. You know, almost like playing against the Thunder Bay Vulcans. It was <laughs> Just unbelievable how tough the American League was back then, and you'd have brawls. Brawls would be like twenty minutes there too, you know. And I got to play for Al McNeil with Atlanta, and Al McNeil I thought was a really good coach. I loved Al McNeil too, and I loved Don Cherry for what they were and and how they and and I you know I could be wrong here, but I still think and I know hockey's changing with what you can say to kids and how you have to do things, but I can honestly say. I would have never made pro hockey. I would have never made the OHL. I would have never won the American League scoring. I would have never made the WHA. If I never had coaches like Albert Kava, John Brophy, uh, Don Cherry, um, Al McNeil, uh, Dwayne rupp he was a quieter guy. But these guys that would come in and lay the law down to you about what it's like to compete and win. And if, if we can't do that anymore to kids sometimes, and you got to do it in the right way, but if you can't, do, and you can't yell and scream every practice, but there has to be a way of authority where kids, kids are saying, oh, I'm being abused and everything like that, because you're not. You you're, guys just want the best out of you, you know? And so, I mean, at times change. That's just the way it is, and we have to abide by what, what the change in hockey is right now. But I can honestly say I would have never made it had I not had those coaches Pushing me,
0: Smitty. What was it like meeting Mister Orr the first time?
2: Uh, you know what? What the heck did I say to him? I remember meeting him in the hallway, and uh,
0: I feel like I, all I'd have to say is "Hi." No, I, I think I
2: said something to him like. Uh, I can't remember something. You know, if we were walking down the street together or something, people would say, hi, Ricarduno. who's that guy walking with you or something like that? <laughs> I think the guys dared me to say that or something, eh? and I was joking around. But, uh, no, it was phenomenal to, say, to just shake his hand. I mean, it's too bad people didn't get to see Bobby Orr. A lot of the young guys, watch how he had different speeds, carry the puck up ice and, and make plays. And he, he had, Bobby Orr was way ahead of his time, way ahead of his time and uh you know the way he could move the puck play defense score that many points yes the goalies are better now no two ways about it the equipment's better the the skates are better and bobby had bad knees and everything like that but i even got to play against him uh, when i played with the bruins against chicago in the chicago stadium and uh i mean it was just phenomenal being on the ice out on the ice same ice surface as him and uh you know Bobby's on the blue line looking at the Bruins bench and the guys saying hi to him and everything. And I think he even looked at Grapes and says, hey, Grapes, how you doing? <laughs> you know, and poor Don. He was wishing Bobby was still on the on the Bruins because uh, it, it was it just phenomenal. I, I don't know if there's, you know, I mean, hey, Cale McCarr is a great player. Some of these guys now, Paul Coffey, but I mean, Bobby Orr was just so composed, you know, and he could fight. He could fight and he could take hits. And I'm sure he played injured all the time as far as I'm concerned. You know, so yeah, very lucky. I was very lucky to meet him. I was very lucky to meet Tim Horton with Buffalo. Very lucky because that was that training camp that I think Tim had had the accident. You
1: know, it's you know, after some of these names, I, I feel a little bit bad going back to another one. But I know how, how much he meant to your career overall. And you, you referenced earlier that was like hand in glove with this guy. And and his name shows up on so many of the rosters that you played on, Rick. Davy Gorman. Tell us about him and and what impact he had on your own career.
2: You know what? He had a great impact because he ended. He was uh, there was a fellow named Jeff Jake's that took me under his wing my first year, and then but Davy was still on my line, and Jeff was awesome because he was a twenty year old who knew I needed to be looked after with my my wife and I. But then Davey was my on-ice uh, guy where, you know what? Like Davy was loose all the time. He liked to crack one-liners all the time. He, uh, he was so talented with the puck. You put him in all alone on the goalie, the pucks in the net. He could make great plays. He knew how to avoid checks. Um, he, he was an imitator. I was an imitator of people and, and players. And so he kept me loose. I, I was nervous about playing in the OHL. Would I survive? Can I do it? And then once we got through training camp, him and I, and I had to kind of prove myself with him and the other players that I could play, he really uh, took me under his wing. And whenever we would play other teams, he'd say, ah, don't worry about that guy. Let's don't worry about this line. We're going to outplay them. You know, and we were only 17 years, 16 going on 17. And we're playing against Reggie Thomas, Dennis Ververgaard with London, and uh, all these great players with Kitchener and, uh, you know, the, Uh, Randy Carlisle in Sudbury, uh, Dave Farish, uh, Mike Marson. And you know what? He kind of kept me cool where I'm not worried about those guys. Let's just go and play how good we are. And I actually took that into a little bit of coaching of mine, too. Don't worry about the other team. Let's just worry about how good we're going to be. And Davey was phenomenal. Uh, A great friend. Him and I, I mean, if we lost the game, Davey and I still laughed. If we won a game, Davey and I still laughed, but he had to make me laugh first. I was a little bit, sometimes I'd get down in the dumps, but that was, that was what Davey was like. He, he didn't let anything bother him. And so to this day, you know, I give him a lot of credit and uh, he was a great player. He even got me to Birmingham. He, Bill Waters did, but Davey phoned John Brophy and said, you got to get Rick Aduno here. You got to bring him here. He's a good player. And cause I, uh, you know, I wasn't getting a break out of the American league with the NHL and, Davey was trying to get me there, and he did get me there. So I can be forever thankful to him in that way also.
0: Did you always know that coaching was going to be your next step?
2: I had no idea. I thought, how how could I be a coach? I was always the biggest guy that made – coaches would leave a room, I'd be imitating them. (laughs) (laughs) Or I'd be cracking jokes. And uh, no, no idea.
0: We might need uh, to hear you quickly just imitate Brophy. I I would not hate (laughs) to hear a John Brophy impression.
2: (laughs) I told you a couple of stories when he said to me, Oh, it's Mitty, I got to tell you. I, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, there, there was one time I'm sitting in the hot stove lounge. I went to watch the Leafs play, and I sat with Broke before the game when he was coaching the Leafs. And one of the players came up to him in the hot sto- stove lounge, and he said, bro, am I in the lineup tonight? And Broke looked at him, and he said, No. And he walked away, and Broke looked at me, and he goes, I'm putting that guy in the lineup tonight. Why the hell would I put that guy in the lineup tonight? To He's not going in the lineup. Tonight. I'm going, bro, take it easy on the poor guy, eh? And, I'm, you know, I'm thinking, geez. Because that's the same stuff he would say about me and Davey Gorman. He'd say about Davey Gorman. He he, he told me in his office one day, uh, Davey cuts in the middle of the again. I'm going to yell at the other team to hit him. And he did that against Cincinnati. Davey cut in the middle and broke yelling from the bench. Somebody please hit that guy! Hit that guy! So he learns a lesson. Please hit him! And Davey comes to the bench and he goes, "Was that Brophy yelling to hit me?" He goes, "Yeah." <laughs> he said, "He said Gorman, I told you before. You're going to cut to the middle. I'm yelling at the other team to hit you." So that was the only way to stop him from cutting to the middle. Did
0: your but, coaching uh, style kind of mirror that? Like you mentioned, like Cherry and Brophy and the guys that you mentioned. Did your coaching style kind of mirror their style?
2: Well, you know what? It, it again, coaching's changed. So When I first coached junior hockey, uh, I kind of did a lot of that coaching junior hockey in Thunder Bay here at the very start because, uh, yeah, I played hockey. I knew a lot about hockey, but coaching knowledge I had to gain, and I would, I would uh, do a lot of – not a lot, but I'd do quite a bit of yelling. Yeah, I'd kind of get on guys and yell, and I, I learned after a while you can't yell. can't yell that much. Guys, you're just going to tune you out. And then when I went to pro and I coached in uh, South Carolina with Rick Vibe as an assistant at first – Viber was a great communicator with the players. Uh, sometimes he would yell, I would calm him down and you know, and then I got to learn through that. And then, you know, I'll, sometimes you still got to get on guys cases, but I learned, I started learning how to be more of a teacher as a coach, teaching more, learning more, studying the game. I was lucky enough to, I mean, you know, I, I looked back and, uh, I texted Jared Betnar last week just to say, you know, I good luck, Betsy in the playoffs. And, uh, I can't believe how many guys I've coached, and I'm nobody special, but throughout my career in coaching overseas in North America, how many guys I've coached that have gone on to be coaches. It's just a great feeling, you know, whether they're in the Southern Pro League, the East Coast League, coaching in Germany, uh, coaching in other places throughout the world. It's just, it's awesome that guys have taken upon coaching to themselves because they must have actually enjoyed playing for you. And I've been lucky. I've had, sure, I've had guys have not like me not too many but I've had a lot of guys say that they've enjoyed playing for me and that's, that's a great feather in your cap you know and I, I got to be really good at taking the advice of, of your core group that are hard workers on your team and guys that want to win I got pretty good at communicating with them to get the feel for the locker room and get the feel for the players and get the feel for how we need what we need to do to win get the feel for practice and how hard we need to practice the next day and you start winning because of that. If you're losing, then you got to change gears. But uh, uh, John Brophy, you know, taught me a little bit of that, along with uh, Don Cherry and all these other guys, and uh, a fellow named Dave Siciliano from Thunder Bay, who I started to learn from when I was fresh out of pro hockey, when I coached junior. And then when I went over to Germany, it was a total different ball game on the big ice surface. I got to coach Christian Erhoff, and sometimes I would ask him, comparing to NHL practices and stuff, and, he would say, Rick, you know what, you're, you're doing a great job with the way you're running practice. And so it's, uh, you know, and if you don't check up on those things, you can't be the best you can be. And sometimes you, I, I learned off so many coaches in my lifetime, even overseas. Like when you're studying video, you learn off other coaches, you learn off what they do, and sometimes you nail them with what they're doing by what you're going to do the next game. And, you know, I, I learned in coaching, you can't overdo video, but I'll tell you what. If you don't pick out every nick and nook and cranny in video, you might lose that next game because of something that you missed. But you got to try and get the message to your players without doing more than ten, fifteen minutes on game day or whatever. So, yeah, I, I, the people that brought me up in hockey and helped me be a player, I can't thank them enough. All those coaches, and boy, I, you know, you use the word. Did you learn? Honest to God, between periods, before games, sometimes it'd be going through my mind. Okay, I'm like both tonight. I'm like this guy tonight. I'm like that guy tonight. I'm, I'm, I'm something that I remember. And I used to read some books on the bus, not whole books. I'd read chapters of John Wooden, of um, uh, the guy that coached, uh, who's the best basketball coach. Uh, I read, I'd read. always use little quirks he'd use in his books.
0: Phil Jackson? Uh,
2: uh, Phil Jackson, but not Phil. the. Uh, oh, he's on the tip of my tongue. Everybody knows him, probably listen to this podcast. He's still involved with Orlando maybe. As a manager. Um ah uh, Pat Riley. Oh Pat oh, of Riley, course. yeah, of course. course. Yeah, Miami. I'd, re- I'd read some Pat Riley, you know, and I'd I'd read some some hockey books, uh, you know, just to pick and and sometimes I wouldn't read the whole book. After a game I'd pick up and try and find things, what I need to do tomorrow, on some quotes by coaches. And you'd be amazed by how many times if you picked up a book and looked at quotes or looked at some chapters on different coaches how all of a sudden something clicks into your mind for the next day. It, it's unbelievable. And I, I've always I've always kind of done that. I still watch every NHL game on TV right now. I have paper in front of me watching NHL games. I've got rinks in front of me. And if I see plays that I can add one aspect to, I do. And I've got thousands of pages of uh, of, of uh, power play, penalty kill, four checks, neutral zone, ozone, face-offs, uh, everything that you can think of, uh, in notes of every team in Germany. And I, I kind of make folders of NHL teams right now too, picking up on things that they do to stay in touch. And I still do the NHL coaching clinic, uh, every year. Uh, It's been visually because of the pandemic, but I do that. And I mean, I'm 67 years old right now. Who knows what's going to happen tomorrow, but I still haven't given up on coaching and I still want to be a good coach. And before this podcast, I was out coaching my, uh, 12-year-old grandson with a triple-A summer team and my 13-year-old grandson with a triple-A summer team running a practice for them.
1: I love it. Do you you allow them to get the most out of them, Rick?
2: Yes, I do. I love it. We're going to dump
1: the
0: puck into the corner and you guys have to both go in and get it.
2: (laughs) I haven't used that one yet. If I did, (laughs) I think I'd have parents all over me. So I, I just try to create a great tempo with the kids and try and teach them. I like them to practice like pros right now. Am I wrong? I don't know. Am I right? I think I am. But if they can practice like pros at 12 years old and get them to practice with that kind of tempo and do drills like pros do, uh, you devise your own drills. That's the way I like to do it, even though I take a lot of notes. I think you can really teach players and get them to be good players. And that's exactly what we do. And I I always tell them, be better better tomorrow than you are today. Get to that. Don't be a 20-year-old thinking I'm going to be really good at 25. You got to be good at 20. At 16, you got to be the best player at 16. And it's not putting pressure on them. It's giving them the advice that they need. And I tell my grandchildren that all the time. I can't cheat and tell you you're playing great, even though I love you guys to death. Play good or bad, I love you no matter what. But we have to tell them what they need to do to get better all the time. And I think that's important. And I don't know. You know, I still, if I don't coach pro again within, I'd like to go to Germany for one year at a time. Or you know, maybe coach in North America one year at a time, or if my pro coaching is is over soon, I might I would like to coach maybe a AAA team here in Thunder Bay for one year to really help the kids understand what it's like to have to progress. And we have there's no question there's good coaches, but I still think you have something to offer more. When you've been around the world, coaching in the Champions Hockey League in Europe, coaching in the best German league in Europe, getting the coach of the year in Europe, getting the ECHL, winning the championship there. And every one of those ECHL coaches, let me tell you, those guys are great coaches because they have to do all their own paperwork. They have to run their own practices. Now they have assistant coaches. Very rarely did I have an assistant coach in in the East Coast League other than in South Carolina. And uh, I had Jason Fitzsimmons back then, but uh, you you have to do so much paperwork, so much recruiting, so much finding out about players by yourself in the off season, and prepare every practice and do the video. And the players get called up, you have to replace them with a not just an emergency backup from that's an accountant. Sometimes you got two emergency backups that are accountants on defense in the East Coast League. (laughs) (laughs) I I think, Smitty, all
1: you got to do is find another stall kid up there in Thunder Bay, and you'll have a great team again.
2: Uh, Trust me. You know what? Uh, There there is a lot of great people up here. We have to get Thunder Bay back on the map a little more. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. With players progressing out of this city, because we have put a few in the NHL, the stalls, the Urimas are great players. You know, we've had a lot of adunos nos but uh, so far, I'm the only one to crack the NHL for that short period of time. I was hoping it was going to happen in coaching, but not yet. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll bring up a, a 68-year-old uh, a former European East Coast Hockey League coach. For some reason, I could never get to the American Hockey League, but I deem I got to the best league in Germany, which I think many players have told me that it's as good as the American Hockey League with the 11 imports, you know, because they're all usually experienced. And uh, there's some great Germans. You can't doubt that with Dreitz, and uh, Stutzel. Uh, Stutzel actually was a little kid in Krefeld when I started coaching there. And so he moved on to Mannheim and then ended up being in the National Hockey League at 17 years old. So it's, uh, it's a small, small world. But boy, oh boy, just be the best you can be. And uh, good things can happen for you if you work hard at it. As you guys know, and I, I told you that at the start of the interview, boys. Nick Nixon's in Los Angeles. Uh, uh, the guy for Tampa Bay, Rick Peckham, I had him. Uh, I've had all kinds of guys. I've had trainers. Uh, Miles Huriama was with the L.A. Kings, won two Stanley Cups. I got my guy from Port Hurons with the Las Vegas. Been there for a couple of years. Whenever I hired these guys, I'd say, fellas, you know what? I hate to say this. I want to be in the NHL, but I'll guarantee you, you're going to be there before me. And <laughs> That's what happened. <laughs>
0: When you were were overseas, Smitty, you had uh, Ranger boy Serge Payet in his final year of his career, former captain of the Rangers. Obviously, anyone who's a fan of the Rangers or the OHL in Serge's time knows the troubles he went through in this league. But how was Serge when you had him overseas?
2: You know what? Again, hard to meet a better person than Serge. He's a hockey agent now, very successful one. And he's got some uh, charities that he does now, too. He's got a nice family. I think he married a German girl, if I'm not mistaken. I think he lives in Florida. But when I had Serge in Krefeld, I took over about 30 games into the season and Serge had torn his knee apart. And he came back the last three games of the year, I think it was. But he was a great guy for helping me get used to Germany back then because uh, I think it was his second year there. And uh, he was actually he might have been one of our higher-paid guys coming out of the NHL back then. And uh, But he he just couldn't get it going again because of that bad knee. But, boy, did he help me. I'm such a professional person and make me feel good about myself because he'd watch the practices. And I'd talk to him about his injury. And, you know, he'd tell me how much he liked the way things were going on, even though he wasn't playing. And uh, Serge was, he was great. There was nobody I was cheering harder for to score a goal the last game of the year because he played and he was still injured, but he wanted to play another game. Before his career ended because he knew he knew his knee wasn't that good anymore but just a great guy he re- certainly represented Kitchener well and uh, and the people that know him in Kitchener can't say enough about him and you know a lot if any of those players in Kitchener are looking for an agent uh, uh, you know Serge is a, is a great guy to go to because obviously he's got some great connections in the NHL too along with I cannot forget uh, Steve Bartlett who is uh, Steve Bartlett out of New York has been a phenomenal person to me since I played in Rochester 100 years ago and has been a great friend of mine, uh, and he's a great player agent uh, for players. I know he has Kale McCarr and other great players, and he was in Germany last week, Steve. But him and his boys are great people, and they would look after you 100%, and they're very honest people, and they care about people. And I sure found that out about Steve over the last uh, 10 years, how much he's a genuine person.
0: I do have one last question. I know Farwell normally chirps me for always having one more, and he me. always has one more. Rick always Brace yourself. We
2: could, we could stay here till this time next year when the snow flies in Thunder Bay again. Cause <laughs> today it started melting because I could tell you stories till the cows come till the cows come home.
1: Yeah, and let Well, you're you're telling a fib right now. Same time next year, the snow will be back in Thunder Bay by early September,
0: and you know it. <laughs> it
2: might be here again for the first game of the Stanley Cup Finals. There you go. <laughs> I was going to say, it's going to fall late this year.
0: Uh, m- my question is a is a personal one, though. But I- When you were in South Carolina and you won the Kelly Cup uh, as an assistant under uh, Squid, yeah. you had my uncle, Steve Parson, on the team. And we've had him on this podcast. And um, if anybody listened to that episode of the podcast knows that Steve liked to have a little fun while he played hockey. And what I should say is that he was playing hockey while he was having a lot of fun. But uh, I'm just curious if you have a good Steve Parson story from your time with him in South Carolina.
2: Steve Parson. uh, (laughs) It's hard to even tell a story about Steve because, you know what, we used to bug him all the time. (laughs) Perfect. Parson, Steve, are you going to say something today? You never talk. And he would just look at you and smile and not say anything hard. He would just smile. He played for the Thunder Bay team here, the Thunder Bay Senators in the Colonial League or Senators. Yeah, and and I brought four guys with me that year to South Carolina when I went. I stole them from the Senators, and Steve was one of them. And, uh, I mean, he was just the quietest guy, never said anything until we go into the playoffs, and we had some injuries, and Steve was – he was – playing, we might have even used him on the power play. I can't remember if if he was on the power play or not. He scored a hat trick. We beat them three games to nothing in the three out of five, but Steve scored a hat trick. And I think he had two shorthanded maybe that game, and he played phenomenal. And uh, after he scored the hat trick, he came to the bench, and we thought he was going to be overjoyed and everything, and we're going, Parse, great job, buddy. What do you think? Give me a high five. What do you got to say, Parse? And he just looked back and said,
1: That's pretty good, eh? You know, what's crazy about this, Rick, is you talk about him being so quiet then. We can't (laughs) shut him up now. He must Are have saved kidding? all his
2: words. The guy does not <laughs> shut up. Are you kidding me? That's unbelievable because Port Pars never said a word, but boy, was he valuable to our team. He oh, my valuable. God. Rick, he,
0: he's just word vomit now.
1: Yeah, and now you just made his head grow another size. Yeah. He's got more stories to tell while we'll playing for the great Rick Smitty Aduno. And here we go. Oh, here we go.
2: God. You know what? I'll tell you, I was, I was blessed again because I coached some great players in South Carolina. And some have gone on to great careers. Some have gone on great coaching careers. Look at Bedsy going for the Stanley Cup now. Yeah. Jason Fitzsimmons has won a Stanley Cup as a director of player personnel with Washington. Uh, you know, you can go on and on. Some, some guys have become firemen. Some guys are working for, for uh, Pfizer Drug Company in South Carolina. And, and you know what? There's a lot of those guys I talked into coming to South Carolina for $300 a week and your apartment paid for. It. And they'd go, you're crazy. I'm not coming. I said, trust me. Your future will – this will help your future. They would come and play, do well, and i bet you we got five or six working for Pfizer right now, and some of them have gone on to the great hockey stuff. And, and some of them have said to me, Rick, wow, am I ever glad I came?
0: Yeah, what's Pfizer done lately, though? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know
2: what? I should phone some of them and say, hey, guys, you know what? You want to throw a little bit my way? The <laughs> there you go. I'm back in good old Thunder Bay, and I love Charleston. I would love to live there, but I've got seven grandchildren here, and it's really hard to leave Thunder Bay. It's I, really hard. I was going to say,
0: if anybody, I don't know who's coaching South Carolina right now, but if they want to pay me $600 a week plus my apartment to come down and play hockey at the Ice House on South, in South Carolina, so, uh, I'm in.
2: You know what? That place is heaven on earth. <laughs> Charleston, South Carolina, the rink seats 10000 and when you have you ever seen that rink when it was full and the people cheering? You, you know what? The NHL rinks weren't that loud back then. I'm telling you, it was unbelievable.
0: That's oh, what I heard. How nice
2: that was. Louisiana, 12,000. Every place you went sold out back then. So it was a great place to live. I actually bought a house there, and uh, I, I made a bad mistake. I, I should have kept it. should have never sold it.
1: You know what, That's- Rick? This has been so much fun and there are so many names that we were able to catch up on and, and so many we didn't even get to. So we'll save those for part two and we call you back sometime after the snow flies. And you've probably got some of the, the Stanley cup playoffs just started tonight. You probably got some notes to make and some power play <laughs> setups to watch, but this has been just a, a great conversation and we thank you very much for doing it with us.
2: Well, thank you guys. And you know what boys, like I said, uh, you guys will be in the National Hockey League and I'll be phoning you guys to maybe get a ticket for myself and my wife and my grandchildren at some point. <laughs>
1: I'll tell you what, if that happens, you're on. And for all seven grandchildren, or nine if there's that many by that time, okay? Guaranteed.
2: <laughs> yeah. Hey, you know what? <laughs> I just want to mention one guy's name with the Winnipeg Jets, Jimmy Roy, who was a phenomenal person when I coached him. And he, he's a director of uh, player development. And you know what? Every time... I don't call him a lot, but whenever I call this guy, Jimmy Roy, that played for me in uh, Germany, every time I call him, he texts me back or calls me within five minutes. Not even. And that's the kind of guys that people need in the NHL. And this guy is so valuable. Uh, you know, I just, I just wanted to give him a little plug because Winnipeg Jets are so lucky to have a guy like that.
1: From Sioux Lookout.
2: From Sue Lookout. All you
1: Northern boys, because Winnipeg's the closest big city you got up there, Smitty, and Sue Lookout's right next door. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. And they own a coffee shop up there, too, the Royce. So I love it. I just it. wanted to mention them. You guys are, you know what? You guys should be already higher up in the league because you know you know so much already. So you guys should be moving up American League or NHL pretty soon, boys.
1: We we know so much because we talk to guys like you, Smitty. Thanks again for doing this. It's been a blast.
2: Hey, good luck to the Kitchener Rangers. I never, ever thought I would say that after playing in St. Catharines. <laughs> good luck to Brennan Menard, the Kitchener Rangers, and all you guys. Uh, I hope you can pull it off, boys. Go get them.
0: Do, did, will. The Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? And Jackie Holowaddy from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network.
2: Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.